Hi, I'm Dan Barrick, news director for NHPR. Thank you to everyone who made a donation during our March membership drive. Your generous support helps us keep these on-air fundraising campaigns short so you can get back to the uninterrupted news and information you need to stay informed and connected. If you didn't have a chance to contribute, there is still time to join this growing community of public radio supporters. Make your gift now at nhpr.org. And thank you so much. Support for NHPR's The Exchange podcast comes from you, our listeners, and from the New Hampshire Chiropractic Association, an organization of professionals providing a non-invasive, non-surgical approach to healthcare, tailoring treatment plans to meet individuals' needs. Learn more at nhchiropractic.org. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. Economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman has been writing about fiscal policy in the United States for decades. In his recent book, Arguing with Zombies, he writes about zombie ideas, that is, those ideas that refuse to die even though they've been proven false. I started our conversation by asking him to define zombie idea. So a zombie idea is any idea that should be dead because it's been shown wrong uh, by experience, by evidence, Uh, but refuses to die, just keeps on you know, shambling along, eating people's brains. Um, it's this term I stole from some debates about, about healthcare. And uh, I mean, the most persistent zombie in American political life is the idea that cutting taxes on rich people does magical things, causes the economy to grow so much so that may, maybe you even actually end up uh, uh, getting more tax revenue than, than you lose from the tax cuts. But there's whole bunches of, of zombies out there. That, in fact, Part of the point of the of my book is that an awfully high share of what should be discussion of real issues in the United States is actually serious thought versus zombies. So that's, uh, there are zombies all around us these days. With respect to writing these columns, you you listed as one of your uh, rules for writing is that you you shouldn't be afraid to question the motives of people espousing zombie ideas. And I'm wondering where you draw the line. How do you determine when the moment is right to question someone's motives? Because motives can sometimes be hard to divine. Yeah. So you look, first of all, it, are, is there a serious idea there? If someone is, even if I, if I disagree, if someone is actually making a coherent argument and citing some evidence, then okay, then you know, then I'm willing to treat this as a good faith argument. If they're saying things that are obviously false, if there's lies, then you have sort of ask, well, why are they doing that? Particularly if they do it repeatedly. And then you just, you know, it, it's not fair to your readers to pretend that you're having a serious good faith argument with somebody who is obviously a hired gun for, for some interest group. So uh, it, it is something of a judgment call, but it's not usually a hard one. Actually, let me give you an example. So we're, there's, there's a real debate right now. Uh, it appears that Congress is about to pass and President Biden is about to sign a really big relief package for COVID-19. Um, and it is a big relief package. And there are some people I respect who are worried that it might be a bit too big, that we might be causing some inflationary pressure. I think they're wrong, uh, but I'm not going to say that Larry Summers uh, or Olivier Blanchard, a classmate of mine, who was former chief economist of the IMF, are that there's nothing wrong with their motives. 
they they are honestly concerned about that and i'm willing this is a good faith discussion on the other hand if um uh uh, you know, if if Governor Abbott of Texas says that windmills caused the, the the collapse of the Texas power grid, well, that's you know that 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 is he's not being honest. He knows better than that. And and, and we we do need to talk about why is he saying that? Not is it true? Because it clearly isn't. So when you hear an accusation like windmills caused the failure of the grid, before you come out and say something like you're arguing in bad faith, that's not true. Do you do any research into that person and their possible motivations? Oh, sure. I mean, it, there's an awful lot of, uh, of of research for you know about the history as it happens. Uh, in the case of Governor Abbott, he actually said one thing to one audience and something else to another audience. To a more sophisticated audience, he said, "Well, it wasn't the windmills." But then, when he went on Fox News, he said it was the windmills. So uh, that that's an easy one. But other things too. I mean, if the most common zombie is is the tax cut mythology, the most deadly is the climate change denial. And in that case, there's been a lot of research. You know, when we when you find people uh, who write articles who that deny that climate change is happening, that deny the human role or whatever, um, and there have been studies of you know, who supports these people. Where, what, what fraction of the of climate denialism is essentially funded by fossil fuel interests? And to a rough approximation, the answer is one hundred percent. It's hmm. it's an entirely corrupt enterprise. And and again, it's not fair to your readers to pretend that it's anything but that. Mm-hmm. And you make very clear in this book that you think. Republicans are largely responsible for the proliferation and supporting of uh, zombie ideas. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's America now in some other time. If we were in Venezuela, if we were in uh, the, uh, the former Soviet Union, there would be plenty of zombies of the left. But the reality of, and there are a few things out there. Uh, and there, there, of course, there are places where, where the extreme left and the extreme right become indistinguishable from each other. But, but given who has the power, who has the money, who has the network to disseminate lies, the important zombies in the United States are almost entirely zombies of, of the right. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the specific areas. You've already mentioned a few, tax policy, climate yeah. change. Let's start there with tax policy and the, the, the old line that if you cut taxes... That'll spur enough economic development that would compensate for the loss in revenue. Has there ever been a case where that is true? If there is one, I don't know about it. Certainly not in the United States. Taxes in the United States have never been high enough for that to be to be. You know, they they. It's true that if the, under the, you know, when we had that socialist Dwight Eisenhower as president, uh, some some nominal tax rates were over ninety percent, but there were enough ways around that, that that essentially nobody paid that. And there's never really been a case in in the United States. Now it's possible there that there were some points when Swedish tax rates were so high that it was actually really counterproductive, but. Uh, I don't even I don't even know that I can't think of any example. I mean, not none of the and, and the thing is we because it's such a powerful zombie. We've tried it again and again. We've had repeated tax cuts uh, under U.S. presidents and then tax increases. You know, some of our, our audience here may be old enough to remember how Bill Clinton's tax hike was going to cause a depression. 
which didn't exactly happen in the Clinton years, or about how Obama, by raising taxes in 2013, was going to send the economy to a tailspin, or how George W. Bush was going to create a mass, incredible boom, you know, so on down the line. And then we also have, you know, we're a federal system, so we get to see what happened in Kansas. We get to see what happened in California when they raised taxes. And you know, at this point, there is not one success story not one even plausible success story for this doctrine. And yet, uh, I see that Mississippi is about to cut to, to slash income taxes in the belief that it will produce an economic miracle. So still out there. I can understand your explanation of why politicians might repeat these zombie ideas. Uh, you, you've explained that very well. But why would someone who did not benefit from the tax cuts of 2017, for example, still persist in supporting those who went all in on passing it. Uh, what, what is their motivation for believing a zombie idea? It, it's actually not entirely clear that they did. Um, if you actually, one of the things that's really quite interesting now is, so this Biden proposal has 70 plus percent public approval. The Trump tax cuts had only about half that much. The, the public disapproved of those tax cuts. Even Republicans weren't particularly enthusiastic about them. So what they were doing, there were people who were supporting them only because it, Trump's name was attached to them. And they and the people and people who support Trump uh, supported him probably for other stuff. I mean, it was you know Trump is uh, uh, corrupt, uh, law breaking, all of that, and. And so that's all the stuff they like about him, right? I mean, it was basically it was basically all the things that that it was. But you know, Trump was appealing to to values, to ethnic antagonism, to all these things. And it, his economic policies, which were very much orthodox Republican economic policies, actually never had very much support. Not even that much among Republicans. So it's always been, you know, use. Uh, there was a wonderfully written book. Uh, What's the Matter with Kansas by Tom Frank back uh, 16 years ago. And, and political scientists have some problems with it, but it was all about basically using social issues to get working class voters to support policies that are actually detrimental to their interests. And people, they, these policies have never actually had broad popular appeal, but they, they have an enormous amount of money behind them. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. More with Paul Krugman after a break. This is NHPR. Welcome back. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. Let's go back to my conversation with Paul Krugman. We're speaking about his book, Arguing with Zombies, which spells out ideas on things like social security, tax policy, and health care that have been disproven but remain a talking point by many, often right-wing, politicians. We spoke in front of a live virtual audience, and we encouraged audience members to submit questions for Krugman. We're getting some questions about things that are in the news right now, so I want to make sure we, we get a chance to talk about those. Sure. Um, you mentioned briefly already the the 1.9 trillion dollar right. uh, s- stimulus package, and that that you know you have some legitimate disagreements among your your colleagues. Uh, what 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 do you what do you think works about this, and what do you think isn't working so well? Okay, the the I I have been I've had a basically unsuccessful campaign to get people to stop calling it the stimulus because that's really not what it's about. It's this is very different. And 
in 2009, when uh, President Obama passed his thing, um, the economy was in a classic recession where the problem was people weren't spending because they had too much debt and because the financial markets had fallen into disarray and you really needed to pump up spending in the economy. That's not where we are now. We are an economy that's oppressed because stuff isn't safe. Uh, you know, the reason the reason the restaurants are empty is not because people don't have the money to spend in restaurants. It's because, uh, you know, the virus. Um, so um, what this is mostly is it's a it's a relief package. It's a until the pandemic has has been brought under control, until enough of us have been vaccinated, we need to keep a lot of stuff shut down. And but the trouble is people need income they need to get through this so mostly it's about getting people through these remaining uh, months of, of pandemic related distress so it's mostly not a stimulus now if you ask is it all well targeted towards dealing with the with the with the downside with the troubles we have no not all of it is a lot of it is a lot of it is getting shots in arms uh, providing the money to reopen schools safely, that sort of thing. And a, another large chunk is unemployment benefits for the people who can't work because of the pandemic. And, and so that's all desirable. And uh, there's a lot of aid to state and local governments, which is not all, but many state and local governments are in big trouble financially because of the pandemic. And they, and they unlike the federal government, need, are supposed to balance their budgets. Parts that are more questionable are, you know, the fourteen hundred dollar checks to everybody, uh, almost everybody, and um, that seems the, like more uh, in line with what we would consider a traditional stimulus. Yeah, except even that is probably not all that good as a stimulus because a lot of people don't are not in trouble and are getting money, those checks in any way. And people who are not in trouble are, for the most part, probably going to save the checks. They're going to use them to to pay down debts or to add to their bank accounts. Um, which doesn't provide much stimulus either. The question is, so why are we doing this? And there's two good reasons, actually. One is that the targeted stuff, unemployment benefits and so on, is not perfect. People will fall through the cracks, quite a lot of people. Someone who's got reduced hours or somebody who, has a, um, who owns a business that is just, you know, is floundering but hasn't gone under, those checks can make a big difference to those people. So you're doing a a fair bit. It's, you know, it's, it's less than a quarter of the total thing, but we're spreading a bunch of money out there uh, in the expectation that some of it will land on people who really need it. Um, and the rest, well, we're not short of money, so let's, let's do this. Um, and then also, you know, this is the real, the, those checks are enormously popular. And that's not irrelevant. You know, you part, uh, the biggest constraint on doing what needs to be done during an economic crisis, which we, we learned to our very painfully a dozen years ago is getting public support for it. And if there's a measure that you can afford that helps build public support for doing all of the things that you really, really need to do, then let's do it. So, so the, yeah, so though, you know, if an ideal perfectly targeted bill to do what needs to be done could be smaller, it, it would certainly still be well over a trillion dollars, but it probably wouldn't be 1.9 trillion, but, Hey, you know, I, I guess there's you know the old line, uh, 800 billion here, 800 billion there, and eventually you're talking about real money. But this is, uh, but we're not actually in any kind of of cash constrained situation now. I want to bring in a question from an audience member. Someone, uh, I think it was Barbara, asks. Barbara asks, can you tell us what you think about the $15 minimum wage proposal? 
Okay. Um, I'm for it. I, unfortunately, you know, because of the arcane rules of the Senate, it's not going to be in this bill. Um, and it's an interesting story. I mean, so the minimum wage, uh, the, the, the minimum wage story ought to be something that makes you feel really good about economics as at least the beginnings of a science. Because if you go back 25 years and you ask economists, what do you think happens if you raise the minimum wage? They would have said, I would have said, it reduces employment because it makes labor more expensive. But you could actually, it turns out that you can actually bring evidence to bear on this because you get a lot of uh, natural experiments in the jargon, which is when one state raises its minimum wage and neighboring states don't, and you can compare what happens. And this happens many, many times because of, of the nature of the US system. And the overwhelming evidence of that is that at least within the range that we see in the United States, there are no visible negative employment effects. Or if, they're, if they exist, they're so tiny that they really don't matter. On the other hand, it does raise people's wages, reduces poverty, so that there's an overwhelming economic case for a higher minimum wage. Obviously, not, not without limits. I mean, if you said $30 minimum wage, even, I would say, no, I, I don't think I want to go there. But I think it's a, it's a really good idea. It's clearly it's a good idea for New York, California, high productivity states, and it's probably not a serious problem even in Alabama, Mississippi, low productivity states. Um, so it's a really good thing, and uh, it's also, by the way, extremely popular. Uh, the uh, you know Florida voted for Donald Trump, but they also had a referendum on raising the Florida minimum wage to fifteen dollars, and it got sixty-one percent support. So, um, so I'm for it. Now, unfortunately, we can't do it in this apparently in this bill um but let's do a let's do a standalone vote and force uh you know force republicans uh, to to vote no on something that their constituents overwhelmingly um in fact want is 15 dollars an hour the right amount if we're talking about uh ending or at least reducing to some extent poverty if if 30 dollars is too much is is 15 where we should be 15 Fifteen is probably you could make the case for more than fifteen for for New York, for New Jersey, um, the uh, Massachusetts states that are are high high income, relatively high wage states. Uh, fifteen looks a little bit high for some other parts of the country, um, and so if it's not, it's a bit of a compromise. Now you could say, look, let's. Let's have a targeted one. Let's have some index that so that it's not the same minimum wage everywhere. But then you run into the problem of there's a lot to be said for simplicity, and particularly in the world of politics. You know, we have a, a movement called the Fight for 15, uh, which has a pretty good ring to it. And making it the fight for 63% of the prevailing median wage in each state is not going to have the same ring to it. So, so 15 looks like a kind of a it, it's a round number. It kind of worked. Now, what it really should be is it should be 15 and henceforth indexed to consumer prices so that it doesn't get eroded by inflation over time. Mm. Uh, but if it, it's, 15 is, not a, it is a good enough number, as, as, my, as my father used to say, good enough for government work, which this is government work. Mm -hmm. uh, we got another question from an audience member. Shiraz asks, do you think student loan cancellation would be positive for economic growth? Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm with Elizabeth Warren on this. Um, the um, 
if if we'd had a you know if if we'd had a, a really fair well-run system of college admissions and payments all along then saying okay now we're gonna just change the rules and and uh and wipe out a bunch of that debt could be problematic uh but the fact is we didn't we we've had um uh people oversold on what education was going to get them with people going into debt and uh drives me crazy when people say well but what about you know students who who borrowed to go to ivy league schools aren't they going to be fine you know to as a Again, to a first approximation, nobody goes to Ivy League schools. We're talking about a few thousand students in a country of, of 300 million. So the reality is we're talking about people who went to vocational schools, went to people who went to, to um, uh, state schools, to community colleges, and ended up with large debts, and in many cases without the income benefits that they were told education would get them. So, you know, give a... a, a a, a, an amnesty, basically, a forgiveness of debt is is something that we can do a lot of good, and it's very easy to implement. So, no, I'm I'm, I'm for it. I know I know that the president says ten thousand, and uh, Warren says fifty, and I'm I'm on Warren's side of that. I'll, I'll take. I think the the, the administration's proposal is too small. We get another question regarding Elizabeth Warren. Uh, uh, Lori asks, what are your thoughts on the Warren Sanders proposed 3% wealth tax on billionaires? Um, again, I'm for it. Now, it's cheap to be for it because it is it's not going to happen for quite a, you know, any time soon. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe in, in Kamala Harris's second administration, uh, not even then. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. But no, the, the, the case for a wealth tax is, is really pretty clear. It's it's not just a significant wealth you know revenue source. We used to say, oh well, there isn't enough money there to for it to be, but now there is. Now there's the there's enough wealth at the top that there's a significant amount of money, and simply um, limiting the ability of dynastic fortunes to grow is a positive good in itself. Um, it's, uh, it's something we, we should be doing, and I have to say it, it's one of those things. It's it's kind of interesting you know, talk about who's serious. Uh, when when Warren put together her plan, the specifics, uh, this was not some group of hacks who put it together. The the, the team, uh, the uh, the the architects of the, of the details were Saez and Zuckman, and if you follow the inequality, wealth, taxation literature was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, th this is like getting Beyonce to sing at your wedding. These were the best people possible to, to have, have done it. So that this was, this is serious stuff. It's serious stuff intellectually. Now I think politically it has no chance of happening anytime soon, but, uh, but I'm for it. Uh, it's amazing that, you know, in this book, you have a column from 1992 talking about wage inequality, the the rapid growth of the upper one percent's uh, wealth and and the and the gradual fall of the 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 lower echelons of folks uh, and and how they're just they're they're not advancing as fast as they should. And you're using data from the eighties, from the seventies and eighties. That's right. And it's still going on. Yeah. And every argument that I knock down in that piece, it's called The Rich, the Right and the Facts. It's the oldest by far piece in the book. Every argument that I knock down is still in use, and that's the, the that's the zombie aspect, right? Everything, everything that people were saying that was clearly false in 1992 is still a routine talking point on 
Fox Business and CNBC today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to bring it around to to the subject of climate change, climate yeah. denial, um, because as you write in this book, and I think a lot of our, our listeners would agree with this, it's it, it's the issue that trumps all others. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if because we don't have a habitable planet, like what's the point of the Affordable Care Act or anything yeah. like that? So. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the evolution of the zombie ideas with respect to climate change and perhaps the the best example you've heard of of combating those those zombie ideas when it comes to climate? Climate change is one of those areas where there is multiple lines of defense. You know, the climate change isn't happening and anyway it's not man-made and furthermore there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, and so you, you say, well, now look, here's, here's the evidence. It really is happening. And they say, well, it's not man-made. So here's the evidence that really is man-made. And they say, well, they're here, but it's, it's impossible to, to do anything about it. And you say, well, look, here's, in fact, the, the, the economics of dealing with it have never been easier. And you think you've gotten through. And the next thing you know, they're saying, it isn't happening. <laughs> you're, you're right back at the, the same. So it's, it's the, the zombie idea. So you just level and level. And of course, they, if you ask, well, why? Um, it's a combination of things. It's there are fossil fuel interests. There are there's still a lot of money uh, sunk into um, stuff that is is destroying the habitability of the planet. Um, there's an ideological thing as well. Um, I do talk in arguing with zombies about um, the halo effect, the which uh, the the belief on the part of many political operatives, I think correctly, that economic ideas don't just matter for their direct consequences, but for how they convey legitimacy on other stuff. So if you admit that there's a necessary role for public policy in limiting climate change, uh, in limiting pollution in general, you kind of open the door for a greater role for government and other stuff like mitigating income inequality. So people tend to be unwilling to accept climate change at some level because they're afraid that you save the planet today, and the next thing you know, you're going to be taxing billionaires. The question of motives uh, gets complicated for me when we start talking about climate change. Because if you're talking about a politician, a wealthy politician peddling a tax policy that's that's bad for the little guy but good for the wealthy politician, I can see why that politician would be motivated to lie about that. But with climate change, if you lie to your constituents and say everything's going to be fine if we keep burning as much fossil fuels as we can... The planet is equally destroyed for both parties. So why would a politician have an incentive to lie about bad climate policy when it's essentially enabling the destruction of the planet? Well, they certainly got a short-term incentive it'll, mm. you know, for the next few elections. And then people are not, there are not a whole lot of deep thinkers in, in our political life. Let's put it this way. There are not a lot of people who, who are honest even with themselves. So if you think, I mean... Uh, there, there are not that many people who, you know, who actually know that what they're doing is evil, and they're sitting and, and twirling their mustaches and saying, ah, "I'm evil." And, and um, maybe Mitch McConnell, but outside, aside from him, um, the because uh, you no, do call some he, of them bad, like just genuinely bad people in this book for selling yes, no, out their children, no, essentially. Yes, we certainly are seeing a lot of actual bad people, but they, I don't think that there are that many people who are actually self-consciously 
working on the destruction of civilization for the sake of short-term financial gain. What they're managing to do is they're managing to rationalize it. It's not going to be really that bad. And think of all the money I can make over the next 15 years if we can avoid doing this stuff. And and they just somehow, it's really, really hard to get people to to focus on consequences that are some ways down the line. I, I still do wonder, you do, you kind of wonder what, even if you're a fossil fuel baron, even if you're personal wealth is all tied up in this stuff. People do have families to do with children. They have to think it has to somehow penetrate. Maybe not, but you would think that somehow the, the reality of, of uh, utter catastrophe uh, would penetrate people's minds, but people are very good at not seeing what is inconvenient for them not to see. So it's the idea of a zombie idea is not necessarily a knowingly lying to another, but in some cases lying to oneself. Most of the zombie stuff, I think, is 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 in fact uh, knowing lies, but but there's a fair bit of, of self-deception involved as well. We're speaking with economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman about his book, Arguing with Zombies. This is Writers on a New England Stage. I'm Peter Biello. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm Peter Biello. Let's get back to my conversation with Paul Krugman. We're speaking about his book, Arguing with Zombies. And here, we spoke about Social Security and the false ideas pushed by some on the right about the strength of the program. I wanted to ask you about Social Security because that's another area where zombie ideas can't seem to die. I believe the the big zombie idea surrounding Social Security, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's that it's going to be insolvent soon. Right. Yeah. So... There's a slight nugget of reality that un, that that underlies all of that stuff, uh, but it's it's a it's pretty slight. Um, Social Security fundamentally is a system. Uh, it's funny because it's part part of the problem is is that it's set up to look like a pension fund, where you pay in during your life and then you collect your pension later on. Um, it was done because that was a politically acceptable way to do it but that's not really what it is what social security really is is it's working people pay taxes and those taxes are used to support retirees and um the uh and but it's it's set up it has a standalone budget which is purely an artifact it's you know that's it's a it's a it's a kind of a legal fiction but still it's it's there in the legislation and because the baby boomers uh got older um, and uh, the, the uh, life expectancy uh, usually rises. It didn't this past year, um, but the, uh, um, the, you have an increasing number of retirees per working age adult, which means that the revenue base is not growing as fast as the population of beneficiaries. So that requires probably that something be done. Now it doesn't go bankrupt because it's not like a pension fund. There isn't. There's a little bit of money in the account, although even that is fictitious. That's the Social Security Administration holds a bunch of U.S. government bonds. So that's just the the left hand of the government holds some claims on the right hand of the government. But the um, even once that trust fund is gone, you'll still have enough revenue coming in to pay most of the benefits that have been promised. And you ask, well, what would it take to pay all of the benefits? And the answer is, well, Congress would have to allocate a little bit more money to the system. We get this question from Corrine about Social Security. She wanted to know, what about eliminating the income cap to contribute to Social Security? Yeah, that's, a, that's been an interesting question. Of, um, 
the thing I would say about Social Security is that eliminating the income cap on Social Security is just a way of increasing taxes on higher income people. Uh, you know, so you know, just drop drop the veil, drop the pretense that it's an independent program because really it's just part of the federal government. And if you want to raise more money from higher income people, is a uh, a twelve percent increase on tax rates on people earning over I don't know where the upper limit is now, the hundred fifty thousand a year, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, that that to a 12% tax increase on all income over 150000 is that the policy you want to do? Or would you want something that was more targeted towards still higher incomes? You know, I'm not one of those people who's going to say, oh, you know, $250,000 is still middle class. It isn't. Uh, that's, that's it. we're talking about pretty comfortable people. But still, is that actually a sensible tax policy? So I, I think the, the right answer instead is to, um, is, is, yeah, it's, it's not completely stupid because look, Medicare, Medicare Part A, so uh, which is not is funded like Social Security, um, it, and that's that that piece of the payroll tax goes on forever. And no, there's no there's no upper limit there, and then, so you could do that, but it's probably not the smartest way to do this. And uh, in particular, you know, Social Security taxes are only on earned income, on wage income. Uh, Shouldn't we getting be getting some of this out of taxes on, on wealth and capital gains uh, and dividends, not just out of? So it's not a it's not a horrible idea, but I don't think it. it I think it, to even talk about that way is to buy into the mythology of Social Security as if it were just a pension fund. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about Obamacare because uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, had its fair share of zombie ideas at the beginning, and there was a little bit of evolution as the law became more and more uh, a part of so many people's health care. Can you talk a little bit about the zombie ideas that surrounded the Affordable Care Act? Yeah. So, I mean, the whole, I mean, health care, you know, the zombie idea originally, I, I borrowed, I stole the term uh, from a, a, a Canadian paper on healthcare. It was about the zombie ideas that Americans have about Canadian healthcare, which is the idea, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border each day to get healthcare, which is not true. Uh, and um, um, so there are a whole bunch of things. I mean, death panels, uh, the idea that um, a lot of people think that, you know, getting the government involved in healthcare is uniformly disastrous. And it's amazing how many of the people who believe that are actually people over 65, all of whom benefit from a single-payer system known as Medicare. Um, the Affordable Care Act, I think the part of the problem with it was that for pretty good political reasons, it's, it's actually a conservative program, a little bit in the political sense, but more just in the sense of it was a program designed to disturb the existing system as little as possible. So... If you had employer-based insurance, it didn't change. Lots of things remained the same. We just kind of added this stuff onto it in ways that are a little bit complicated, um, trying to get a bunch of people insured without disturbing the existing arrangements means a, a, a more intricate system and it's easy to tell horror stories about, oh, gigantic rate increases, which actually never happened, or death panels, which never actually happened, or you know, all these... Uh, or massive job losses, which never actually happened. Um, and it's still, if, if you were to kind of start from scratch, you wouldn't, you'd have a much simpler system, but it has, you know, uh, tens of millions of, of 
people have health insurance who wouldn't have it otherwise. And there are obvious holes. The, the subsidies are inadequate. They stop too soon. Or there's not enough. Um, there, there are some gaps in the system, many of which will be fixed in the legislation that's probably going to pass this week. Um, now, not permanent fixes, unfortunately, but but I think they probably will in the end become permanent. And you know, it's not it it it's not the system you would devise. And we're not going to get even with these additional things to a hundred percent universal coverage, which we should. Every other advanced country does, but it's going to be it's it's uh, compared with with the way we were before. It's a much much better system, and it will get better. I want to ask you a little bit about the media, because you write about the media in in this book, Arguing with Zombies, uh, and how the media has at times uh, unfairly or improperly or insufficiently uh, done the legwork that it takes to debunk a, a zombie idea. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the media's role in perpetuating zombie ideas? There are certain inherent biases in a lot of media coverage, and one of them is that there are always two sides to an issue, even when there aren't. So the um, climate change, there are maybe 12 climate deniers with halfway adequate academic credentials versus thousands. And yet many articles on climate change, at least until recently, would treat it as if it was an equal-sided debate. Back when, uh, I mean, one of the very first things I, I wrote, one of the, my early columns, I was dealing with the debates during the presidential campaign of 2000. I said, if, if, um, if one of the candidates said that the earth was flat, the, the headline would read, views differ on shape of planet, right? It's, uh, and, so, and that works very much, of course, in favor of if you have one side of the political spectrum that lies a lot more than the other, that means that in, in practice, the, the coverage is very unbalanced. Um, and when the media does decide that there is a right position, often they get it wrong. So there was this horrifying period for some of us uh, in the early parts of, 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 of the 2010s when people who warned about an imminent death crisis for the United States were treated as heroes and telling the obvious truth it was just not uh and some of them were obvious phonies if you actually you know paul ryan i think he's kind of disappeared from the public consciousness but it was amazing how he was treated uh with incredible laudatory coverage when you didn't have to read very hard to realize that he was a phony and um so um uh it it's hard now the media you know in some ways trump made it easier because Trump was so blatant a liar, and uh, uh, that that for the most part you didn't, you know, aside from of course the captive media, which is a large part of the spectrum, um, you had a lot more straightforward reporting. But I do worry that we're going to see a lot of reversion to type. That once again we're going to have somebody saying stuff that is clearly false, and that he has to know is false, and yet will be treated. With uh, you even see some stories saying you know that Republicans are deficit hawks. No, they aren't. There are no genuine deficit hawks over there. They're they're only deficit hawks of of convenience. They're only deficit hawks when a Democrat's in the White House. So we we're, we're going to have to keep an eye on that and you know be beware just because uh, just because uh, uh, well even just because NPR or the New York Times says it's so doesn't necessarily mean that it's so. I. 
there's there are debates going on in newsrooms, and and I've had this conversation with my editors about um, even if you give the other side's position and then immediately debunk it, like say X number of Republicans say Antifa was actually behind the January sixth riots. Those people are wrong. There is no evidence for that. But is there still some damage done by actually saying that aloud over and over again? Yeah, and I think the you know, part of the you have to report what people say, but they're the structure of the reporting. Uh, you probably should, whenever possible, start by saying that it's a lie before pointing out, before retailing the lie. I mean, the, the, the classic newspaper article, which retails a whole bunch of malicious falsehoods, and in the 37th paragraph says, by the way, these are malicious falsehoods, that doesn't work. Um, headlines need to be... You need to think a lot about headlines because that's often all the people uh, read. You need to think, uh, if it's TV, you need to think about what the Chiron says. Uh, you know, a, a misleading Chiron can do an amazing amount of damage no matter what the people, what, what the talking heads actually say. So uh, it's hard. And of course, on the other hand, let's, let's, I, I'm spending a little bit of time worrying. You know, right now we have a, we have a new administration, which certainly in the economics area, is not only staffed by a lot of smart people, but is in fact staffed by a lot of smart people that are friends of mine, right? And I need to be make some effort to not, you know, when they say something that's wrong, I need to be prepared to say that, but not to one piece attacking Democrats followed by a piece attacking Republicans, and you know, not not, not false balance. To just just try and tell the truth. Mm -hmm. With respect to media literacy, there is one example here that I I will confess that someone who's I'm not someone who is well versed in in economic theory. Uh, you write about how Harvard economists Carmen Reinhart and Kenneth Rogoff uh, wrote something that was kind of accepted as unquestioned fact. People wrote about it in the Washington Post, and then it turns out that part of their research was wrong because of, in part, because of an Excel chart error. And they, they had to sort of backtrack a little bit on that. But that's one of those things where if we are just casual or even avid news consumers, we wouldn't have picked up on that. So my, I guess my question to you is not necessarily about their particular error, but like, how do we as, as intelligent news consumers who want to get the right story and understand what's happening, f build into our process of news consumption, uh, checks so that we we don't fall for bad information well talk to other people i mean the truth is that and by the way carmen and, and ken are are good economists who slipped up badly and uh, and then got carried away so uh, you know again these are people i know and uh, but they um but those other people including myself who actually knew the field the minute that paper came out we came down on it like a ton of bricks said this is really bad work uh I'm really shocked to see these, you know, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff coming out with something like this. And the question I think newsrooms should ask themselves is why weren't they talking to and listening to uh, all the other economists who said this is not this is not good work? They were talking to politicians who were grabbing hold of it because it told them what they wanted to hear, but that was not where they should have been going. They should have been going and and asking the people at 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 the Federal Reserve, the International Monetary Fund, top economics departments. Um, so, you know, that's that's a that was a case where a, a little bit more due diligence of the right kind 
is it could have could have saved a lot of people from being misled. What's your relationship with the reporters at the Times? Are are you in frequent contact with them, and do you do you in any way uh, inform their reporting? Uh, not very directly. It's a uh, Times. Has, They'd have to read your column. Uh, pretty much. I mean, the Times is a. Uh, the Times is is a is a whole is a maze of Chinese walls, right? The opinion section and the news section, uh, even the editorial page and the op-ed writers are completely cut off from one another. The Times doesn't know what I'm going to write until it it lands in um, uh, lands in in, in the uh, electronic inbox at you know four or five in in, in the afternoon. The um, obviously we read each other and, and and these days everybody's got a twitter account so uh, i have a pretty good idea what say uh, neil Irwin or or uh, uh you know benjamin applebaum are are thinking just from from tracking their twitter feed and the, the same is true they know what i'm what i'm thinking about but but no there is no uh, there is no process of consultation and um you know even before covid uh, I did not have an office at the Times. Uh, uh, actually, I'm the only op-ed columnist in New York at the Times who actually has an office. It's all it's all cubicles now, and but because of my other identity, I actually have an office at the City University of New York. The office is about as big as some people's closets, but it actually is an office with a door. So, so you don't you don't pitch your articles before you write them. You just write them and send them in. No, I mean, we. Uh, I usually have an inquiry from uh, uh, op-ed sometime mid-morning. What are you writing about today? Just so that they have some idea what should be on the page. And and but there's never a a process of clearance. Yeah, I mean, if I if I was going to write something about uh, uh, you know about, about uh, some kind of. Uh, Hollywood scandal or something at my, <laughs> I don't know what would happen if I went completely but mad, but, but no, there, there's, there's no, there's no preclearance at all on what I'm going to write. We've got some audience questions. I want to make sure we get to Penelope asks, how does one take on the big lie of the quote unquote, undeniably rigged election? I mean, I, I can't avoid mentioning it, but uh, at some level, it's kind of literally not my department. And for what it's worth, the press is handling that pretty well. The, or the, the trouble is, uh, it that's fine for people who read the New York Times or listen to NPR, but people who are watching Fox News or, uh, or Newsmax or OAN, uh, um, God help us. I don't know. I mean, it's... It, they're, there's plenty of evidence, but I, I'm actually, I, I've actually been making an effort to write not much about this stuff, be, just not because it's not crucially important, but because other people can do that better than I can. And I just want to focus on the stuff where I actually think I can add something. Mm-hmm. Mary asks, how do we as individuals dismantle these zombie ideas? Well, you have to, first of all, you have to do it for yourself. You have to you know, try, unfortunately, being a citizen now really does require that you be a little more, you know, diligent. You can't, you can't, the days when you could uh, just trust Walter Cronkite to tell you the truth are a long time behind us. You need to be a little bit more, a lot more critical of a, of a news consumer. And then uh, all I can say is that one thing that I have noticed about, actually both about politics and the media, is that politicians and people in the news media are 
in many cases, a lot thinner skin than you imagine. When people, when reporters get a, a bunch of mail from people saying, why did you let uh, you know, Senator Bomfog get away with those blatant lies? Um, they get upset. And that's a good thing. They should be feeling that, that, that there is some accountability. So um, not just, you know, try to be informed, but also if, if you are outraged by what's going on, make your voice heard as best you can. We have a question from Shiraz who asks, what's your outlook for young people who want to be economists? Oh, good God. Um, it's a, I mean, part, I know the reason I'm talking about that is not, is not, is neither positive nor negative. It's more confused because I have to say that the world has changed enormously. Um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was uh, going to grad school, we knew there was a very cut and dried path. You, uh, you know, you got your, your PhD and you, uh, you published a series of papers, you got your, your associate professor, you got tenure, you did, and, and there was a, a very straightforward, and now it's a much more of a free-for-all. I know people who have gone straight into economics uh, blogging, uh, people who have completely bypassed the academic career and gone from to 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 NGOs around the world and had a lot of influence in those and uh, and even the yeah, public we we have <laughs> nobody actually reads economic journals anymore. All right, they they exist, but they're tombstones. The, by the time a paper actually appears in a journal, it has been typically been circulating in in electronic form for years. I mean, I, it long, long ago, I, I, one of my more, not, not especially important, but technically clever papers, uh, by the time it was published, I had to include an appendix describing subsequent literature because there had been 150 derivative papers written off my original paper by the time it actually appeared in print. So the rules are all very fluid now. The only thing I can say is that economics is a wide range of, of things you can do with it. There are careers in business, there's careers in NGOs, there's careers in public policy, there's, uh, and, and there's still academia out there. So, and uh, it can be fun to say. It's almost, not almost something that people think of, but, but I actually know a lot of people who actually had a really pretty interesting, fulfilling lives doing economics of all things. Well, Paul Krugman, I've, I've been a fan of your columns. It was a pleasure to read them all at once in, in this book. It was, it was really enlightening. Thank you very much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. Well, thanks for having me on. And that's it for this edition of Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. The Music Hall's executive director is Tina Sautel. NHPR's president is Jim Schachter. The Music Hall Director of Communications and Community Engagement is Monty Bohannon. NHPR's producer of Writers on a New England Stage is Sarah Plourd. NHPR's Director of Communications and Marketing is Patricia McLaughlin. Itaj Ismailova is NHPR's Marketing and Communications Coordinator. And the Music Hall Literary Producer is Brittany Wasson. Music in this broadcast by Little Glass Men. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for joining us for Writers on a New England Stage. 